1: Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that. And you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcast. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash M I starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard, T H E R O B E R T L E O N A R D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I talk with investing expert, Rick Ferry. Rick is a chartered financial analyst, the founder of Ferry Investment Solutions, an author, and podcast host of Bogle Heads on Investing. He is passionate about maximizing investment returns by eliminating unnecessary fees and increasing simplicity.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investor's Podcast Network. Where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Rick Ferry. Welcome to the show, Rick.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. For those
1: listening, who may not know who you are or who John Bogle was or what a Boglehead is. Can you please talk to us about John and Bogleheads?
2: Sure. So John Bogle is the founder of the Vanguard Group of Mutual Funds. And their specialty at Vanguard is index funds and low-cost investing. But primarily, John Bogle created the very first index mutual fund back in nineteen seventy six, which was almost a flop and almost didn't make it back then. but it created now which is a huge industry where almost all of the fund flows in mutual funds and exchange traded funds are going into index funds. So it started out very slowly, but now it is a major part of most people's investment portfolio. So John Bogle is credited for that. He passed away earlier this year. I am part of a organization called the Bogleheads. I'm actually the president of the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy. And we just continue to promote the idea that investing is not hard. Investing is easy if you do it in a very low cost and simple way and not have a lot of complexity. Not have a lot of taxes and not have a lot of fees, and that's what the bogleheads are all about.
1: How did you get involved with this boglehead strategy? What really drew you to index funds over other strategies that you know are often quoted as more exciting?
2: Well, I I have a background in analysis. Uh, I went into the investment industry after I left the Marine Corps. I was a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps back in the early 1980s, and uh, later on, I went into the reserves. Finished my 20 years. However, in the late 1980s, I went to Wall Street, and the people on Wall Street were managing investment portfolios and the analyst on Wall Street had a designation called a Charter Financial Analyst Charter. So I thought I'd better get one of those. So I worked on that for three years and received my CFA charter. And I was studying the performance of active managers versus indexes, basically all the different mutual funds out there that are trying to beat the market are trying to beat a particular market and what i studied during the 1990s and did a lot of analysis on was the rather poor track record of all of those fund managers who were trying to outperform and i came to the epiphany in 1996 that why bother trying to outperform the market when the market just does Well, all on its own. And all you need as an investor is to get the return of the market instead of trying to beat the market. And you will be much farther ahead than most people who are out there trying to outperform. And when I had that epiphany for the last 20 some odd years, I've just been uh, preaching and singing in the choir, so to speak.
1: That's really interesting that you found that out after the CFA and and working on Wall Street because I mean that's essentially what Wall Street does is they look to outperform the market and obviously the CFA is a big designation to help those people on Wall Street do that so it's really interesting that that you realize this after having getting that designation.
2: Well, it's exactly what you said. The CFA charter is supposed to help people outperform. The fact is, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter if you have a CFA charter. It doesn't really matter if you have a master's of science and finance, which I also have. It doesn't matter if you're a PhD. The markets are difficult to outperform. And if you think that you're going to develop some strategy to outperform the market, you are probably mistaken. Now, there is a small minority of people who have done it. Number one, they will not manage your money. And number two, we can no way determine who those people are going to be in advance. So why do you need to do that? You don't need to bother. If you just get the return of the market, you're in the top 10 percentile of every investor out there. So if you just get the return of the market, you're doing much better than most people and you can achieve your financial objectives. And my goal was to work with my clients to achieve their financial objectives. I didn't have this ulterior motive of becoming a famous money manager. I was only trying to get my clients their fair share of the market return.
1: Why do you think so many people have a hard time beating the market?
2: Because of fees. Investment fees cause them to underperform. It's really quite simple. The return to you is the return of the market less the fees that you're paying. So the market is a zero-sum game. If somebody outperforms, somebody else must underperform. If I am getting the return of the market because I'm using a market index fund, and so I'm getting the return of the market, there are people out there who are trying to beat the market. If somebody does outperform, it means somebody else must underperform. But both of those people are paying higher fees. They're paying transaction costs. They're paying bid-ask spreads. They're paying money management fees. And so net-net, the majority of people who are trying to outperform because of fees underperform. So if all you do is get the performance of the market because your fees are practically nothing, you're outperforming most of those other people.
1: For somebody just getting started investing, why are the fees so much lower on an index fund?
2: I think the fees are lower on an index fund because that's the way Vanguard first designed it. John Bogle, when he founded the Vanguard company, started it as a mutual benefit type of company, meaning the shareholders of the mutual fund own the company as opposed to the other way around. The other way around, like if you take a Fidelity, it's privately owned. You take MFS, it's privately owned. You take any other mutual fund company, it's privately owned or it's owned by shareholders. So the shareholders are trying to get a rate of return on their investment in the the fund company. So they charge fees to the fund shareholders. That's how the shareholders of the fund, the owners of the fund company get paid. Well, with Vanguard, it was different. We, the shareholders, the people who own mutual funds, actually own the company. So we wanted to get our return from the fund. And therefore, the whole idea of having low fees in the fund and keeping the overhead of the Vanguard company itself low was to our benefit. So it was to our benefit as the owners of the company and the investors in the funds to keep the cost low, as opposed to paying high fees for mutual funds that you know the, the shareholders of who own the fund company received it starts out as a conflict of interest right away if you start a fund company because you want to make money by owning a fund company it's a conflict of interest because if you make money by owning the fund company that means your shareholders who are in the fund are not going to make money and just a conflict of interest you're taking their money and putting it into your pocket promising them high returns or promising them they're going to outperform the market when in fact it doesn't happen. So you know, once you have this epiphany, once you realize what is going on out there on Wall Street and how it all works, you never go back. Once you go into the church, you never leave it. You just realize that this is what you're in your best interest is to not pay fees to get the return of the market. And that is in your best interest, although it's at the detriment of the people who own mutual fund companies. So it's all about money. And those
1: active funds also have salaries of people and overhead to pay. And of course, they have portfolio managers and analysts trying to pick the best stocks for them to invest in. So of course, that's going to be expensive, whereas with your low-cost index funds, there's no or very little overhead and salaries to pay. It's really just tracking the market. So the administrative costs allow for much lower fees.
2: Exactly. That helps also as well. I mean, there's no reason you need to go out and try to hire five dozen analysts to analyze every sector of the market to try to pick the winning stocks in those sectors and pay those people hundreds of thousands of dollars a year each. That's all overhead. And then by the way, because fund companies have to market the idea that they're going to outperform, it costs an awful lot of money for these fund companies who are trying to beat the market to go out there and sell you on the idea that they're going to outperform. So that money has to come from somewhere. Well, it comes from the current fund shareholders. So All these fees get added on, and by the way, a lot of brokers get paid by selling these funds, so they have to get paid, and that leads to 12b-1 fees and leads to commissions. And it's all about making money from you, as opposed to you making money for yourself. So, in the end, when you figure all this out, you say, "I don't want to pay any of those fees. Why do I want to pay for the fund company to go out and market to other people? Why? Why do I want to pay for that? You shouldn't have to. If you go into an index fund." The fees are extremely low and you, you don't pay a lot of those expenses.
1: Yeah, that marketing piece of it is really interesting. I had never actually thought of it that way. And you're absolutely correct. I mean, they're spending a lot of marketing dollars to tell people that they're going to outperform, which essentially would draw in more funds for them and have more inflows. But like you said, that money has to come from somewhere and it's coming from current shareholders. That's really interesting. I had never thought of it that way.
2: Yeah. And they, by the way, they can't tell people they're going to outperform they can suggest to you in very many different ways that make you believe they're going to outperform by showing you, say, past performance of a particular fund. They might have 50 or 60 funds of which maybe 10 of them at the time are actually outperforming. So they're going to show you the performance of those 10 funds maybe. And therefore, you're going to believe that they are actually all of their funds outperform when in fact, They don't. A vast majority of them do not. And the ones that currently are outperforming, there's no persistence in the performance. So they might stop outperforming tomorrow. And then a couple of other funds might start outperforming, but you can't tell which is going to outperform and which isn't. In the aggregate, only over a five year period of time, only about 20% of the actively managed mutual funds outperform. And they only outperform by a small amount on aggregate the other 80% underperform, and they underperform by two to three times the amount that 20% outperformed. So you're paying a lot of money for a low probability of picking a fund that's going to outperform. And even if you happen to pick right, you happen to get a fund that did outperform, it's not going to outperform by as much as it should outperform to pay you for the risk that you just took. It's like there's five horses in a race, and you have to bet on the winning horse you put a dollar in and you win, you think you should get $5 back, but you only get $2 back. Well, that's because the track is taking the rest. And this goes on and on and on and on and on, day after day after day, year after year after year, and the mutual fund owners, the people who own mutual funds get rich while you struggle trying to figure out what the next winning fund is going to be, which you can never do. So you know, it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy that goes against everything that you see on television. You know, you read in the magazines, you get on the internet that these people, you know, Jim Cramer, you know, oh yeah, it's easy to do. Well, you know, it's all marketing. It's all marketing to try to get you to invest. And when you really look under the hood, I mean, it's not a four hundred and fifty horsepower engine under there. You know, it's a little, uh, it's a couple of hamsters on a tread wheel is all you get. So that's the reality of the business. And when you realize this, when you have this epiphany, when you have this aha moment, this light bulb moment, you never go back. You never go back the other way. You say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just doing these low cost index funds. That's all I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to buy a few of those good ones, total US stock market, total international stock market, a bond fund. And that's it. I'm done. Good for me. Maybe you just buy one balanced index fund that has everything in it. You don't need anything else. Your fees, just pennies, is all it costs to do this, and that's all you need to do.
1: How does somebody get over the psychological conflict they might have if they buy an index fund and they're getting the market returns, but they might hear their friends or family members bragging about how they're getting, you know, these amazing returns on some of these individual stocks that they're picking? How can somebody deal with that dynamic?
2: Well, you know, it's not true because people are only going to tell you they're winners. They may have this great stock that they're making a lot of money on, but they have 10 other ones that they're losing. They're not going to tell you about the 10 losers. They're going to tell you about the one winner. And it's a random event, the spin of the wheel. You know, if you pick 10 stocks, one of them is going to go up. That's the one you're going to hear about. But in fact, when you actually look at the if they actually gave you the data, they analyze their portfolio, which they're not going to do and you really get into the data on it, you find out they're actually not doing well at all. They're underperforming. This happens. Look, there's going to be lucky people. I'm not saying that you, know, you weren't lucky 20 years ago and you know, bought Google stock whenever they came public. you know, sure, if you held it that long. I mean, look at Amazon. If you would have bought Amazon back when it first came public, you, of course, you'd be you know, wealthy today. But who's going to hold Amazon when it's going up and down 80%, up uh, 100% and then down 80%? I mean, so much volatility. People don't hold these things. So when you look at the actual performance over the long-term of the people who claim to be doing well, you find out that they're really not doing well. They're not, but they're not going to give you that information.
3: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, Has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. mi That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com M-I for your extended 30-day free trial.
3: That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show.
1: So for someone listening to the show right now who knows that they want to start investing, but they just really aren't sure where to begin, where would you recommend that they start?
2: Well, a lot of people who are just starting investing are probably going to go to their employer and invest in the 401k plan that their employer offers, or maybe the 403B plan that they have. So that's usually where people start investing. And within that 401k or the 403B, they're going to have this list of options that you have. And you have to look at those options and you have to say, what can I invest in? And you're looking for the lowest cost funds. So you want to look at what are the fees of these funds. If the If you're looking down the list, it'll say here are your US stock index funds, here are your bond funds, here are your international funds. What you want to do is you want to go to the far right-hand column, if it's there, and you want to look down, you're going to say, where are the ones that have 0.02% fee? 0.03% fee. Those are the ones you want to circle. You don't want to look at the ones that have 0.6% fee, 1.1% fee. 0.9% 0.9% fee. Just forget all those. Just don't even look at them. Look at the fees. Look at the ones that have the extremely low fees of 0.01% expense ratio per year. And those are the ones that are probably the index funds. And then you need to decide how much you want in the US stock index fund, how much you want in the international index fund, how much you want in the bond index fund. But again, look at the fees. Fees will tell you whether you're getting an index fund or whether you're getting some sort of a high cost active management that has a low probability of outperforming that index fund.
1: What if somebody is really interested in this stuff though, and they want to be more hands-on, and they want to have an active role in their investment approach, and, and they want to buy individual companies? Is there a place in somebody's portfolio for a small percentage of that, or should it just be strictly index funds?
2: Well, the very first book I wrote more than 20 years ago was called Serious Money. And Serious Money... The reason I called it serious money because I said the serious money that you have to invest needs to be in index funds. However, if you get to the back of the book, I also talk about bingo money, bingo money. The reason I call it bingo money is because my grandmother, when she used to do the laundry for my grandfather, she used to take the nickels and dimes out of his pocket and put it into a a little jar. And she used to call it, that's my bingo money. And she used to go to the bingo twice a week at the local church. Anyway. So that's the bingo money. So I named a chapter after her. Basically, this is your bingo money, which means the money that you get that sort of is not your serious retirement money, you know, maybe a small account that has a couple of thousand dollars that you want to play around in. Fine. You want to buy a few stocks? I think it's a good idea. You go out and you buy a few stocks.
1: And as long as the portfolio is allocated appropriately and you do lose it, that's a relatively cheap. Form of education, right? You could spend that money, a lot more money on a college education to learn something, but you're going to learn it a lot better and a lot more cheaply if you do it that way and you only allocate a small percentage of your portfolio.
2: The older you get and the more experience you have, the less and less likely you are to go out and try to pick stocks because you understand that you have no information. You need superior information about the company. Number one, you have to have superior information about the stocks you're trying to pick? And why would I have superior information about Amazon or Google? I mean, where am I going to get superior information from? So you have to have superior information about the company, either through analysis or maybe somebody who does have superior information leaked it to you, which of course is illegal. So you have to have superior information. But secondly, you have to know when to trade on that information. And there's a book out by Jim Cramer called Confessions of a Street Addict. It was written 20 years ago. I think it was Jim Cramer's first book. And when I used to teach college, and I used to do college finance, and I used to do quantitative analysis and a lot of other courses, I used to have the students read that book. Because in there, it talked not only about having superior information and how Jim Cramer used to try to get it as a hedge fund manager. Basically he paid off Wall Street analysts by giving them a lot of trades. So they used to call him first. So he tried to get the edge on getting superior information about earnings forecast or change in the rating or something like that that the analyst was going to make publicly. And so he would be the first call to get that information. But secondly, he talked about in that book that even though he had the superior information, he was unable to make any money on it because he didn't know how to trade on it until he hired a trader who happened to be his first wife eventually, who knew how to trade on the stock. So Jim Cramer then would get the superior information the way that he would pay to get it. And then he would give the trades to who would be his future wife, who he hired. She was a trader and she knew how to trade the stock and she would make the trades. And then finally they started making money. So you need superior information and you need to be able to trade the stock superiorly. And if you don't have those two things, you can't outperform on a consistent basis. You can always get lucky. You can always get lucky. And I'm not saying you won't get lucky. But you'll become unlucky eventually. But if you want to actually make money picking individual stocks, you need a whole lot more than just you know a subscription to uh, a stock tracking or a stock charting website or some sort of a program that you use. That doesn't do anything for you.
1: Previously, investing in index funds often had an advantage over individual stocks for newer investors because a lot of large brokers didn't have any trading commissions on their funds. But now that Most large brokerages have gone to zero trade commissions for individual stocks as well. How do you think this is going to impact index funds? Do you think more people are going to start trading individual stocks?
2: No, not going to make any difference at all. That the fact that it's free trading, it it doesn't make any difference. It's irrelevant that they, you know, the fact that now you could trade stocks for free at uh, Schwab and TD and Fidelity, Vanguard. I think it makes no difference. Once you understand that you can't outperform, then What's the point? And by the way, exchange traded funds now also trade for free. So now I can buy index funds at Schwab and Fidelity and TD using exchange traded funds and I don't have to pay a commission. So that's good for me as an index fund investor. If I'm using Schwab or Fidelity or TD, I can buy exchange traded funds there that track the indexes and I don't have to pay a commission either. So I don't see how the fact that you don't have to pay commissions anymore making any difference whatsoever.
1: Of course, it's going to vary for almost every person's individual situation, but as an investment advisor, and whether it be an IRA or a 401k, when do you recommend someone invest in a Roth retirement account versus a traditional retirement account?
2: So there is no rule of thumb for this. There's no one size fits all for this. When you invest in a regular retirement account, like a 401k or an IRA, you're putting your money in pre-tax. So you don't have to pay the taxes, the federal or state income tax on that money this year. And you're limited to how much you can put in, but we're not going to talk about the limits. So if you do it tax deferred, pre-tax, you don't have to pay the taxes on it. So if you're in a high tax bracket now, you put the money in there and you don't have to pay the taxes on the money that you put in. Later on down the road, when you retire, after age 70 and a half, you have to start taking out the money required minimum distributions. And at that point, you're not working anymore. You may not be working anymore. So your tax rate is going to be lower. So the whole idea is this is a tax arbitrage. Why would I pay 35% tax on this money now when I'm retired at age 70 and a half and I take it out, I only have to pay say 12% on it or 22%. So I'm going to go ahead and do this tax arbitrage. But if you don't, if you're in a low tax bracket now anyway, and you think that when you're retired, you're actually going to be in a higher tax bracket because you're, you've got social security coming in and you're you're having to take these required minimum distributions. But today, you're actually in a very low tax bracket. Maybe you're only in a 12% tax bracket because your income is down there at $40,000 or so. Well, you may not want to defer taxes until you're 70 and, and pay more in tax. You might actually want to put money into a Roth, which is after-tax contributions, and then it can grow tax-free for the rest of your life. And then when you take the money out later on, not taxed either. And so that's what you would rather do. So it all depends on what tax bracket you're in now and what tax bracket you're going to think you're going to be in when you are retired. If you think you're going to be in a higher tax bracket when you are retired, put the money in a Roth. If you think you're going to be in a lower tax bracket when you retire, put the money in a traditional IRA or a 401k traditional.
1: What have been some of your biggest mistakes in your investing career, and how can a new investor avoid those same mistakes?
2: Uh, well, I, I cannot count the amount of mistakes that I've made. I mean, it has been just a, a school of hard knocks. Let's see. I'm writing a book now called A Few Good Funds, and in it, the first chapters, I talk about all my investment mistakes. I mean, they run the gamut of buying artwork that was fake to buying um, uh, vacation condos as an investment, which was a bad mistake. I bought stocks based on recommendations in magazines. They they all sounded so good. And then of course, after I bought them, one of them, I bought three stocks at one time. One of them went to zero, the other one went down about 90 percent, and the other one I actually made a little money on because it was bought out. This happened back in the 1980s, and I bought stock options on hunches that turned out to be completely false. I mean, I've done everything that you can imagine. That was absolutely wrong <laughs> until I realized I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea. I thought I knew what I was doing. I have an undergraduate degree in finance, and I have a you know I, I thought I was a smart guy, but I didn't know anything. I still don't know anything. I mean, I know enough now to put money in index funds and just leave it there. I know that. I hope that the stock market continues to go up because the global economy continues to grow, which we all hope for that, because if it doesn't, we're all in trouble, not just our investments, but we are all in trouble as far as our jobs. So we hope that the economy continues to grow. And if it does, the stock market will grow accordingly. So I do know that. I do know what the tax code says, about dividends from stocks are taxed at less than interest from bonds. So I know a few things to be able to put together a a reasonable portfolio but the older I get the less I actually know.
1: How should somebody who hasn't made all those mistakes yet avoid those?
2: It's hard. I mean, you know, we we like to believe we know a lot more than we do, right? Everybody does like trying to ask people if they're a good driver or not. Well, of course, they're a great driver, but everybody else is a terrible driver. It's the same thing with investing at first. It's like a lot of people think that they're really good until they really learn that they're average, and then they learn that average is actually below average, meaning that you you return... An average investor does worse than the market. So if you want to do better than the average investor, then you just buy the market and you'll outperform the average investor. Now you're doing above average. I know it's strange, but that's how it ends up.
1: And there's actually a quote I like, and it it's, goes something like, a smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from others' mistakes. And I really like that quote, because I think it illustrates your point exactly.
2: Don't worry, you'll, you'll make plenty of mistakes. Everybody does. You just can't help it. Men, by the way, make more mistakes than women. I mean, it's clear that we are not as good at listening to other people, taking advice from other wise people, and Investing in index funds and holding them. I and mean, women are much better at doing this than men are. Yeah, well, we're men. You know, let's go, you know, rule the world. And we pay for it. And we do. And, and I'm not talking that, that I'm saying this. I mean, it, it's shown in the data that men, especially men with higher degrees of education, tend to, uh, tend to do the worst.
1: You know, it's interesting because the finance industry is predominantly male. And so it's really interesting to see how this changes as more females come into the industry of those mistakes you mentioned, did they all happen before you started index investing or was this some of them still afterwards?
2: No, that was, this was all before. This, is a, this started when I was basically in 1982, I believe it started when I first had money because I, I, I went into the uh, Marine Corps and I was able to save some money and I wanted to invest it. And so I called my brother-in-law who had just started Working at a stock brokerage place, big firm. And I said, Hey, I got this money. I want to invest it. And he goes, oh, Okay, put it in this mutual fund. So I said, oh, Okay. So I put it in that mutual fund. And within six months, that $2,000 that I invested was only worth about 1600 And part of that, by the way, was the commission I had to pay to get into the fund. So I extrapolated that and I said, My gosh, if this thing continues, I'm going to be broke. I mean, I'm going to lose all of my money in a period of like two years. So just get me out. Get me out of this thing. Get me out of it. Well, it happened to be like uh, the Growth Fund of America, which was the American funds, which is not a bad, bad fund, not a bad actively managed fund. And the fees aren't that bad. But I didn't know. I just could see that this investment was just going to go to zero. And so I got out of it. And of course, that was the beginning of the next bull market that went from 1983 to basically 2000 was the beginning of it, basically the month that I sold. So, and it got worse from there. And then I bought those three stocks because I figured, hey, I'm going to pick stocks now. And then I did the condo thing, the uh, timeshare, which was a train wreck. But the worst train wreck was doing the uh, fake dolly prints that I bought that I thought were going to make me a lot of money. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. (laughs) It's a good thing I didn't have a lot of money back then. And that's a good thing, by the way, when you're young, you don't have a lot of money. You think it's devastating. You think it's terrible. You lost a few hundred dollars, because you bought some stocks and they went down. It does actually a good thing that you lost that money when you were young because when you get older and you have a few million dollars, I mean, you don't want to be making those mistakes. So if you make the mistakes when you're young and you lose this money and you get beat up and you do all these stupid things when you really don't have any money and you get humbled and you, you know get plummeted by the markets and, and all this, and you finally realize, my gosh, what are these index fund things?
1: Yeah. When you're young, I mean, it's a relatively inexpensive way to learn for the long term. So yeah, I completely agree. What is your favorite investing book of all time?
2: Well, the one that changed my life was called Bogle on Mutual Funds. Because during the 1990s, when I was going through this crisis of trying to figure out what is going on, I had my charter financial analyst designation. I was getting my master's of science, finance, and I was trying to find winners, and I was trying to find winning managers, and I was trying to find the formula, and it was just miserably failing, and I was failing my clients, and I felt very depressed. The book that saved it for me was John Bogle's first book, Bogle on Mutual Funds, which he wrote in 1994, and I read it in 1996 after seeing him on stage at a CFA conference in Atlanta in April of 96, and then I bought his book and I read it. And I remember when I read it, I read it on October 23rd, 1996, and I was reading it at about 7.30 p.m. at night as I was sitting in a parking lot of a house of horrors while I was waiting for my children to go through this house of horrors right before Halloween. So I was sitting in the parking lot and all these chainsaws were going off in the back and people were screaming this and that, and I'm waiting for them and I'm reading this book and I'm screaming in the car, my gosh, this is exactly what I see. This is exactly what he was speaking to me through that book, that I was not alone, that what was actually I was seeing day to day in my job and what was I was experiencing on Wall Street and all the stuff that I was seeing was real and that it happens and that I was not alone and that this is the answer. This is how you fix it just use index mutual funds. And as I was reading this, it, I, that's when I had my epiphany and my aha moment. So to me, that's the greatest book that I ever read. Let's take a quick break
3: and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com.
3: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only, learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
0: Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is
1: subject to lender approval and terms apply.
3: All right, back to the show.
1: For somebody listening to the show who might be thinking to themselves, but what about Warren Buffett or Ray Dalio or these guys who have beaten the market for a substantial period of time? What do you have to say about that?
2: Yeah, well, I'm not Warren Buffett, are you? I definitely am not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Ray, I think Ray's great. He's wonderful. Yes, but I'm not him. Okay. If you ask Warren Buffett what I should do with my money, he'll tell you, put it in an index fund. That's what Warren Buffett tells people to do. I'm sure Ray would tell you the same thing. And so you know, there are people that are going to outperform. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people out there that are trying to beat the market. Just by randomness alone, there is going to be a Warren Buffett. There is going to be one. I don't know who they are. If I did, I'd gladly give them my money, but I don't know. They all sound good. They all sound smart. They all have PhDs from all these different incredible universities MIT and Princeton and the University of Chicago. I mean, they're all brilliant, brilliant people. It doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that they have any higher probability of outperforming than somebody else. And for me, I'm talking about me, Rick Ferry. I mean, also, if they are that good, why would they ever want to manage my money? If I'm in the top 10% instead of the top 1%, that's good enough for me. And I know I can guarantee guaranteed to be in that top 10% just by buying the index. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that guarantee.
1: And when you say buying the index, do you mean just buying an S&P 500 index or is it portfolio consisting of maybe the S&P, total US market, total world market, maybe a bond fund. What exactly do you mean when you say buy the market?
2: It depends on which market you want to invest in. So if you want to invest in the US stock market, you buy a total stock market index fund. If you want to invest in a large cap US stocks, you buy the S&P 500 index fund. If you want to buy international stocks, you buy the total international stock index fund. You want to buy emerging markets, you buy an emerging market index fund. If you want to buy bonds, you just want to buy investment-grade bonds, a portfolio of investment-grade bonds in the US, you buy the total bond market index fund. If you want to buy a portfolio of corporate bonds, you buy a corporate bond market index fund. So whatever sector of the market that you want to buy, you buy an index fund. Now, you're going to have US stocks maybe in your portfolio, You're going to have international stocks in your portfolio. You might have some treasury bonds, maybe some treasury inflation protected securities in your portfolio, and you may decide to have some corporate bonds. All four of those segments of the market are all low cost index funds. That's what you buy in each of those segments. It was written in 1994, but the data is just as accurate today as it was 25 years ago when it was written. It doesn't change, the numbers don't change.
1: If you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice when you were just starting to invest, what would you tell yourself?
2: I would say to myself buy Vanguard S&P 500 Index Fund and never sell it.
1: It's simple, but it really is great timeless advice.
2: That's because when I was first starting to invest back in 1993, the only index fund available was the S&P 500 Index Fund. Now, they have a total stock market index fund, which is more than just the top largest 500 stocks. So now, if I was to give somebody a piece of advice, what stock index fund should I buy if I'm only going to buy one stock index fund, you would buy in the US, it would be a total stock market index fund. If you was one stock market index fund that you would buy internationally, it would be a total international index fund if there was just one stock index fund period that you bought and you can only buy one it would be a total world index fund which covers both the US and the international market so if you just bought that one total world index fund that's all you need that's it you don't need anything else
1: do you recommend the total US market fund over an S&P 500 fund and if so why
2: well, because you get more diversification, you'll get another 3,000 stocks. The S&P 500 is basically 500 large companies. The total amount of stocks on the US market is like some around 3,800 stocks. So not only do you get the top 500, you get the other 3,200 or so. So you get more diversification. So, again, that's the reason why.
1: Is there value to somebody looking at how their index fund is weighted?
2: is there value to looking at it? You can look at it all you want. It's not going to make any difference in how you perform as far in the long-term. So if you decided that you're going to, the market is what, it's the sum total of all of the thoughts and wishes and dreams of all the investors are in the market. So Amazon and Google and and so forth are, you know, ExxonMobil. I mean, these are very, very, very large companies and the value of their stocks are, are very large, so they have a bigger component in the market, okay? That's where more money is in those stocks than in the smaller companies. The S&P 500 has more money in those 500 stocks than like 85% of the market is the S&P 500, even though it's 500 stocks and the rest of them are only make up another 15 or possibly 20%. So uh, that's capitalization weighted index. That's what the world believes that the value of all these companies are. now. There's people out there who say, well, instead of doing 500 stocks based on the weights, so I have a more Apple, more Amazon, and so forth, why don't we do equal weighting across? So every, every stock, I have an equal amount. So basically, with 500 stocks, I have 0.2% in 500 different stocks. I mean, is that a viable investment? Yeah, it's viable. Sure is it going to outperform the S&P 500 over the long term? You could make a case it might do that because there are more money pushed down to the smaller components of the S&P 500 that have more risk. And since more of the money has been pushed down from the bigger companies to the smaller companies that have more risk, then you would hope that because you're taking more risk, you'd get a little bit better rate of return in the long run. So theoretically, yes, that's true. However, you can't buy an equal weighted S&P 500 fund as cheaply as you can buy a capitalization weighted S&P 500 fund so you're always going to pay more money to do the equal weight 0.2% in each stock it's always going to cost you more money you may not always get a higher rate of return so the first thing you need to do is get over the fee the extra fee that you're paying okay and It doesn't always do that. It hasn't happened over the last several years where an equal weighted S&P 500 has outperformed a capitalization weighted, but it kind of goes one way and it goes the other, and it goes this way and it goes that. I can just tell you, if you decided to do that, if you decided to do the equal weighting instead of a capitalization weighting, you have to stick with that plan for the rest of your life. Not a few years, not give it a shot, see how it does next year maybe how it does over the next two or three years, it is a lifelong decision. Because I guarantee you, if you decide you're going to do the equal weighting S&P 500, and it underperforms the S&P 500 capitalization weighted, for a couple of years, you underperform, you're going to get out of it. And if you get out of it, you've just locked in your underperformance for the rest of your life. So if you're going to do the equal weighting S&P 500, or the fundamentally weighting, which is another different way of weighting it. You have to do these. You have to make a commitment doing that for the rest of your life because it might take that long before you actually get a benefit from doing it.
1: I personally just go with the capitalization weighted S&P 500.
2: I'm not that smart. So that's what I do too. I I just buy the market.
1: I think we provided a lot of value for the audience. We did a a deep dive into index funds and I think they are going to find it really valuable. Where can the audience go to connect more with you?
2: Oh, my website is rickferry.com. Rickferry, R-I-C-K-F-E-R-R-I.com. That's my website. You'll see my books up there. I'm also the host of a podcast. I host the Bogleheads on Investing podcast. I uh, only do it once a month and I have a special guest every month that come on. I, my first guest happened to be John Bogle, as a matter of fact, uh, a couple of months before he passed. That was a really special program. So you can find me at the Bogleheads on Investing podcast or at rickferry.com. I'll
1: be sure to put links to your podcast, your website, everything you have going on in the show notes so our audience can go to connect with you further. Rick, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I enjoyed it.
1: Before I wrap up today's show, I wanted to give you a reminder that the rating and review drawing ends in just two weeks. I'll be announcing the winner on the February 5th episode, and for those who may have missed the contest details in a previous episode, I am giving away a free book or a one-on-one coaching call with me to three random listeners. In order to enter, all you have to do is leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, post a screenshot of the show on your Instagram, and tag me in the post. Then you'll be entered. Thank you all for the support. I really appreciate it. I look forward to having you all back here for next week's episode.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to the investorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>